This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, December 3rd. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. The Omicron COVID variant has now been found in the United States. As the government and media begin to hype up this new and unknown strain, a new book looks to explain how COVID restrictions began to dominate our lives. Former New York Times reporter and author of the new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights, and Lives, Alex Berenson, joins the show to discuss his book, as well as offer his insight on a proper COVID response. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Alex Berenson, let's hit our top news stories of the day. The Biden administration has been ordered to reinstate a Trump-era immigration policy known as Remain in Mexico. Trump instituted the policy as a way to end catch and release at America's southern border. The Remain in Mexico policy allows asylum seekers to stay in Mexico until the date of their asylum hearing. Biden suspended the policy after taking office. Texas and Missouri then filed lawsuits claiming the policy had been unlawfully suspended. The Supreme Court upheld a ruling from a federal court in favor of Texas and Missouri. And now the Biden administration has been ordered to re-implement the Remain in Mexico policy. The Biden administration is still working to find a legal avenue to repeal the policy. But in the meantime, Mexico has agreed to again work with America and keep immigrants in Mexico while they wait for their scheduled asylum hearing in the United States. On Thursday, the Biden administration announced new anti-COVID measures on the heels of confirmed Omicron variant infections in the United States. The new series of restrictions involve more aggressive travel-related measures starting next week, in addition to previously announced travel bans on international travelers from eight Southern African nations. The announced policy requires international travelers to present a negative COVID test within a 24-hour window before they fly into the country, regardless of vaccination status or national origin. Previously fully vaccinated travelers had to present a negative test within three days of departing for the United States. Additionally, the White House announced new family vaccination clinics, as well as a new education campaign targeting seniors who have not received a booster shot. The White House also released official guidance for private health insurance companies, permitting them to reimburse patients for at-home COVID tests, as well as announcing plans to distribute 25 million tests to community sites. A Massachusetts teacher is suing her former principal and superintendent after she was fired for posting videos on TikTok, voicing her opposition to critical race theory and gender identity ideology. Carrie McRae was a math and business teacher at Hanover High School, about 25 miles south of Boston. McRae ran for school committee in her town of Bourne, Massachusetts last spring and shared the videos to explain what her priorities would be as a committee member. In one of the videos, she says, The reason I ran for school board and the reason I'm taking on this responsibility is to ensure that students, at least in our town, are not being taught critical race theory, that they're not being taught that the country was built on racism. So they're not being taught that they can choose whether or not they want to be a girl or a boy. She won her race, but in September, the Bourne Educators Association called on her to step down, citing the content of the videos. Then the teacher received a letter from her school explaining that she was being terminated because of her posts on social media. 
McRae still remains on the school committee. The conservative legal group Judicial Watch is representing the teacher in her lawsuit against her former principal and superintendent. Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton said in a statement that this civil rights lawsuit aims to hold accountable school district officials who are so desperate to push critical race theory that they will trample the civil rights of our client, Ms. McRae. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Alex Berenson as we discuss his new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights, and Lives as well as offer his insight on a proper COVID response. I'm Zach Smith. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you find your podcasts. It's SCOTUS 101. Our guest today is Alex Berenson, a former New York Times reporter and author of the new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights, and Lives, available now wherever books are sold. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. I have to say, people people keep calling it pandemia, which actually it probably is correct uh, sort of thematically because it's a pandemic. Right. I always call it pandemia with sort of a long E because okay. I think it sounds a little bit more like the hysteria. You know, it's it's a little bit more, it's a little bit, it emphasizes the absurdity of what's happened the last uh, year and a half, but I can't convince people. Everyone everyone calls it pandemia. So maybe maybe I'll have to change the way I pronounce it. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, for the, for the future, it'll be pandemia, how coronavirus hysteria took over. So let's actually start with maybe uh, uh, hysteria in the making. Let's start with the news around the Omicron variant, which, uh, of course, we've just learned about. This comes out of South Africa. Based on your time reporting on COVID-19 and the COVID pandemic, is the media and lawmaker response to Omicron reasonable? How concerned should Americans be about this new variant. No, it, it, it's completely unreasonable. And it's completely in keeping with what we've seen the last 18 months. Now, look, there, there's a chance this is a black swan. Okay, There's a chance that this is really transmissible and it's really more dangerous uh, than, you know, than, than, than earlier strains or earlier variants of the coronavirus. But there's no evidence of that right now. In fact, the South Africans who've been treating people say it appears to be you know, as mild or milder than the Delta variant or the earlier strains. And the fact is that, you know, none of the earlier strains have really been much more dangerous, including Delta. There's, there's not a lot of evidence uh, that, you know, that their mortality was higher with Delta. It's more contagious. So, so the question is, is it more contagious? And the truth is we don't even know that either right now. So uh, the proper response to this would have been, there's a new variant out there. We're aware of it. We're monitoring it. We do think, you know, it might be more contagious and it certainly has a lot of mutations. We will let you know when we know more. And, and, and why didn't they say that? Why didn't the media and the public health authorities say that? Why did you have this essentially coordinated effort to panic the world last week? Um, I think it's, it's perfectly obvious why, at least in the United States, it's obvious why. Um, you know, the, the campaign to get people to take boosters is not really going anywhere. Booster vaccines, the third dose. The campaign to get you know, people to vaccinate their children is not really going anywhere. The vaccine mandates are on the ropes. Several different federal courts have now uh, ruled against several, you know, all three of the mandates. 
And so this is an effort both to, uh, you know, to sort of scare people into getting that third dose or getting, you know, the first dose if they haven't been vaccinated yet, and to make an excuse for the fact that, you know, we know the vaccines uh, are failing, that they, you know, that they're, that over time, they, they, their effectiveness against infection and transmission goes down uh, quite, quite possibly to zero. Um, and so this is, you know, this is an excuse. Go get your booster Go get your vaccine if you haven't gotten it. Go get your kids vaccinated. And if you don't do that, you're to blame. Omicron, it's not, Omicron is the, pro, you know, is the problem. It's not the vaccine. So, I, I mean, I'm just incredibly skeptical and cynical of what we saw last week. And I think if you read Pandemia, um, you will see why. It does seem like we're seeing a similar response to early news to Omicron that we are seeing with Delta. And it sounds like that's what you're saying as well. Is that correct? Yes, I mean, if anything, again, I think I think that we have less evidence to be afraid of uh, of Omicron than of Delta than we did at, of Delta, at, you know, at the at a similar point because you know they caught this so early they really know very very little about it. Now, what they'll say is there are all these mutations, and um, and so you know that's frightening. But the fact is, you know, immunology and virology are incredibly complicated, and you don't really know how the mutations, you know, you, you can sort of, you can, you can essentially try to model how the mutations will make the virus look. And then you can guess about how the new shape of the virus will attach to receptors or will attach to antibodies that, you know, that, that either the vaccine or natural immunity has helped your body create. But you don't really know until you see the, 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 the epidemiology, until you see the statistics. And and that, um, you know, that lesson we should have learned in the last 18 months. And for whatever reason, you know, the public health authorities are ignoring it. Now, one of the things that a lot of people have been concerned about is the response from public health authorities and government officials to things that we are uh, experiencing in this pandemic or we were experiencing during this pandemic. Um, let's pivot to your book, Pandemia, and the research that you did about COVID-19. Let's start out with the sort of obvious first step of the response to COVID, lockdowns. Now, according to your research, did lockdowns actually end up working? Did they do anything? Uh, well, they did a lot. <laughs> You know, they, they messed up our society, they caused people to gain weight, they, they appear to have increased depression significantly among, you know, uh, uh, among young people especially. Um, they, they appear to have helped drive the worst a year for drug overdoses in American history, and this year maybe worse. Uh, they did a lot. Did they do anything to, um, to stop the spread of the coronavirus? Um, well, we're now, you know, almost two years into the coronavirus, uh, the virus is still going around and around this country and around the world. So, um, you know, I'd say the answer to that question is probably no at this point. Okay. So the lockdowns maybe didn't do much positive, obviously, is what you're saying is that they did a lot of negative. Let's shift to the other anti-COVID measure, which is masking. Let's ask the same question. Do masks work? You know, lockdowns, there's an argument about. You can, you know, you can argue, you can look and you can say, well, if you you know, if you if you go early enough, you know, look at New Zealand, New Zealand did really well. Um, you know, they closed the country, they locked down, they didn't have a lot of COVID. Okay, masks, there, there's no argument about. Masks are useless. This, this, was not, this was not even an argument people had before March 2020. Okay, the, 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 when, you, when you try to demonstrate that, that standard cloth or surgical masks reduce infection, 
you can't do it. And, and you know, and they've tried. They tried last year with a big study in Denmark. It showed no efficacy of masks. Um, you know, that just confirmed previous studies of masks and the flu. Um, so they have this theory of source control that masks reduce transmission, which is effectively, you know, next to impossible to demonstrate, uh, you know, epidemiologically. And, and there's good reason to think sort of on the cellular, you know, on the biological, on the viral level, these, these particles are just too small for masks to do any good. And people will say, oh, there's this big study out of Bangladesh and it showed, uh, you know, it showed that masks work. Well, I will tell you what that study actually showed was uh, an eight or nine percent reduction in infections uh, with sort of a, a, a very strong effort to get people to use masks. And by the way, once they stopped, people stopped using the masks in Bangladesh. People in Bangladeshi stopped using masks. So one of the so so that's how much the Bangladeshis cared about the effectiveness of masks. Um, again, the, the, there's two great memes that were going around last year. Uh, on Twitter, you know, before I was banned from Twitter and I could see these things. The one was the chain link fence with the mosquito. Um, so this idea that, you know, the virus, the virus is the mosquito and the mask is the chain link fence. The virus is just too small for masks to do any good. And that's, and that's basically correct. Ma masking, um, you know, it's, it, it, these, these, these particles, I think, are just, we can't imagine how small they are as human beings because the scale is so, uh, you know, is so impossible for a, you know, for, for a person to think of. And so you see this mask and it looks like, you know, it looks like the weave is tight and it looks like nothing can get in or out, but that's just not true. The, the, the holes are, you know, as, as tiny as they are, the virus is smaller. Um, and the other meme that went around or the other was, there were graphs that went around where people would, um, you know, they put up in various states when a mask restriction had been put in or when it had been tightened or when it had been loosened or when it had been, you know, made indoors or when it had been made outdoors. And they graphed that against charts of COVID cases. And what you would see was, you know, absolutely no relationship that, you know, that, that, that when that on a, that on a societal basis, you couldn't find, you couldn't guess which states you were looking at based on mask restrictions or not. If you looked at Florida versus California, you couldn't guess when things had been imposed or restricted. So on this, you know, on the on the most basic scientific level, you there's very good evidence for why masks don't work. And then on the societal level, you see we've all been wearing masks for the last year and a, and a half. Certainly, certainly in 2020, we were all wearing masks. And just as with lockdowns, it made absolutely no difference to the course of the epidemic. One of the things you mention in Pandemia is that COVID deaths have been overcounted. So, for example, uh, a person who dies in a car crash and had COVID would be counted as a COVID death or something similar to uh, that where COVID wasn't the cause of death, but it was being counted as a, a death related to COVID. Is that sort of what you meant by that? Or what, what do you mean when you say that COVID deaths have been overcounted? So to be, to be perfectly clear... COVID deaths probably have been overcounted. That is not to say that a lot of people have not died from COVID. So, so you know, you see these numbers sometimes floating around. Oh, only 6% of the people who, you know, who reportedly died from COVID died from COVID. Or, or the Italians cut it to 3%. That's wrong, okay? COVID killed a lot of people last year and this year. It's, it's killed a lot of people. You can see it in the, you know, in the excess death numbers in the U.S. and elsewhere. Mortality did go up. There was a small group of people who clearly didn't die from COVID. You know, this was the, the classic example is, yeah, the person who had COVID and got in a car accident or the person who had COVID and died of a drug overdose. The, a lot of those deaths were counted as COVID. 
The much bigger problem with the counting of COVID deaths, and I, and I talked about this in my Unreported Truths book with the first one, and I talk about this in Pandemia at some length, is that most of the people who die from COVID are quite sick. They're either extremely elderly and frail, or they're morbidly obese, or they, um, you know, they have some other like, severe illness, like uncontrolled diabetes, uh, you know, uh, you know, severe kidney disease. They're very ill, and so, and so, and this is the thing. This is the, you know, sort of the the original lie around COVID is that we're all at serious risk from it. That's just not true. Now, again, and by the way, once in a while, and the media loves these cases. I hate to say loves, but loves is the right word. They love to find some apparently healthy person under under 60 or under 50 who died from COVID. The Guardian uh, just had another story about one of these people, and he died in July. Okay, it's, it's December. That's how hard they have to look to find people who are young and apparently healthy who died from COVID. Um, so, so the problem isn't that the death counts are, are monstrously overstated. I think they're somewhat overstated. The problem is that this illness on the whole is not serious enough to, to wreck society, to destroy you know, the hospital system, um, or to merit the, 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 the monstrous changes that we've made to our society in the last two years in terms of curtailing people's freedoms, in terms of taking away school from kids for a year, in terms of now mandating a vaccine that you know, even, even if you know, the Pfizer drug has now, or vaccine has now been approved in the US, actually approved, I'd still classify these vaccines as quasi-experimental. Um, we have monstrously overreacted, and the media has encouraged that rather than discouraged it. And the core way they've done that is to scare people who are very low risk from this. Instead of saying, look, this is a problem, and you know, certainly we don't want, you know, we don't want people in nursing homes to die. We don't want them, you know, we don't want excess death of any kind, but we're gonna to try to protect the people who are at risk from this to the extent we can. We're gonna to try to make sure that the surges don't overcome our medical system, which we've demonstrated we can do. And the rest of us are gonna get on with our lives and wait for properly tested vaccines and therapeutics to be available. And why that didn't happen is, you know, it, it's a mystery. I can raise it in pandemia, but I can't solve it yet. I think it's gonna take years and it's gonna take, you know, government archives to be open. And we're gonna to have to see what drove this panic in a way that we haven't been able to yet. There has been a running theme throughout this pandemic of different states taking different approaches to uh, COVID response. So, for example, we've seen red states and blue states take very, very different approaches to COVID, with California and New York doing one thing, and then Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis doing another thing. What can we parse from the data that we've gotten from different states I mean, I would say what we parse is that, you know, government actions have had very little impact. Um, uh, and, and, you know, if you look, so, so you can, now there's an argument that, you know, for a long time, the worst states in terms of deaths were in the Northeast. You know, there are blue states, nanny states. They got hit very hard very early. They made decisions like sending people um, who were sick back into nursing homes um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and, 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 and caused excess death that way. Um, you know, Florida had relatively low death rates, you know, especially uh, relative to the age of its population. Now, you know, 18 months in or, or almost two years in, some southern states are now at the top of the, you know, what they call in, in, in the UK, the league tables. Um, 
And, uh, and so people on the left are going to say, well, that proves that the red states did it wrong. Um, he, the problem with that is, A, again, Florida has a very elderly population, so they're going to naturally um, have extra deaths. And then other southern states like Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, they have, unfortunately, a lot of morbid obesity, right? Those are unhealthy states. And so, uh, so they are more likely to have a lot of uh, death from COVID. So, so I, I mean, once you, well, this is why it gets really hard to try to, you know, assign blame or credit for any response because the epidemiology gets very complicated very quickly. And so what I would say is that, you know, aside from a couple of states, you know, Vermont, which is, which is, which is quite rural and, pro, and you know, relatively healthy, there, there's very few real outliers. Everyone is clustered around, you know, now maybe 2.5 deaths per thousand people over a two-year period. Um, some states are a little higher, some states are a little lower. And, to, and, and you know, and again, you look at Europe, the, the main countries in Western Europe, um, you know, they, for the most part, uh, you know, are at a similar level. Germany has been the outlier and has been better for most of the pandemic. But guess what? Germany is now suddenly seeing a huge acceleration in both cases and deaths. So it looks like you get a reversion to the mean here, no matter what you do. Um, you know, I summed all the, you know, this is a lot of talk, but I summed this up in three words on Twitter. And one of the reasons people hated me or also liked me on Twitter, as I talk about in pandemia, is I had this sort of talent for saying things in a, you know, in a, sometimes in a sarcastic way, sometimes in a cynical way, but they really got to the heart of things, or at least I hoped they did. And what I would say was, virus going to virus, meaning there's just not much anybody can do. It's an airborne respiratory virus. It's just like the flu in that way, virus going to virus, and good luck trying to stop it. I think that's an interesting point that you you mentioned that government response didn't do anything, but we're going to talk about health officials as well. So one of the criticisms that comes up frequently during the pandemic was that health officials like Dr. Fauci or CDC director Rochelle Walensky have come under fire for seemingly flip-flopping on guidance surrounding COVID. How would you rate the performance of public health officials like those two during this pandemic? It's been, it's been terrible. It's been almost shockingly terrible. Um, uh, you know, at the very beginning, uh, there was a, you know, there was a, uh, they were actually calmer, believe it or not. There was, there was seemingly less panic at a time when we actually had more uncertainty and, and arguably more reason to panic. And, you know, you had Fauci, he's, he's on the record in January 2020 saying asymptomatic transmission doesn't seem to be a driver in general of, a, you know, of epidemics. You have him in, in late February, early March saying masks are going to be useless um, you have people like Michael Osterholm, who's a who's a you know infectious disease specialist at the University of Minnesota, writing op-eds for the Washington Post, saying, "Hey, look, we shouldn't crash our economy here. You know, lockdowns are letting a genie out of a bottle that we really can't control." You know, and it, it within a matter of weeks, in March 2020, all these people had hit the you know the the, the panic button, and they have never come back. And uh, and, you know, again, this is a, the question is why, but I think they have, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the polling data from back in sort of early in the epidemic, there's this notion now that somehow Republicans have been, you know, not listening at all. And that's not true, honestly. There were only a few people like me, to be honest, who in April 2020 saying, this is, this is not a good idea to lock down. We really should end this quickly. Most Americans, most people worldwide 
Uh, and most Americans of either political party were strongly in favor of lockdowns through March, April, and May of 2020. I'll tell you when the Republicans really broke off. They really broke off at the Floyd protests because they saw public health authorities who'd been telling people, you have to stay inside, it's dangerous, you, you can't protest these lockdowns. It's telling people by the hundreds of thousands, it's okay to be outside, it's okay to be protesting, it's even okay to be rioting, you know, if the cause is just. And I think that that caused a split that has not, um, you know, that, that has not healed. And it's gotten worse and worse. And, and, and the divide has gotten more and more partisan. By the end of the summer of 2020, uh, and also people, there were a number of people who realized fairly early on, and this is what I'll give myself the most credit for, realized that school closures were a massive mistake and that they were being driven by partisan politics. And so by the, by the end of the summer of 2020, there was a big partisan divide that has only gotten worse. And, and I think the public health authorities have really squandered you know, they, they, they have no credibility left for a large part of the population. One of the things that you mentioned earlier on in the interview was that Twitter had banned you. And the reason that they banned you uh, is that you were apparently, quote unquote, spreading COVID misinformation. Um, I almost feel like that term COVID misinformation has been weaponized to kind of shut down dissenting opinions. Do you feel that that's an accurate assessment? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I used to tweet when I was allowed to tweet. I would say, information you do not like is not misinformation. Um, so, so, so let's, you know, let's sort of walk through. There's lies, right? You know, if I say, you know, 18 million people died from COVID in the United States, that's a lie. Okay. Then there's, then there's disinformation, right? Which is, which is uh, let's say I, I post a video of somebody dropping dead in the street and I say, this person died of COVID. Okay, and, and I have no idea whether or not that person died of COVID. It just, you know, maybe, and maybe the video was taken, you know, during the epidemic in a place where the epidemic happened. But, but, but I don't know and nobody else knows if the person died of COVID, okay? That's disinformation. And, 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 and nobody ever accused me of either of those things. Then there's misinformation. So misinformation is, I say, look at all the deaths on theirs, which is the, you know, federal side effect uh, vaccine reporting database, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. And I say, look, there are more deaths on VAERS from COVID vaccines than in the, in the last six months than in the history of VAERS the previous 30 years, all of other vaccines combined. Okay. And that's, that's correct. Now, maybe it's nine months, maybe I, I, you know, it's, but, but that is basically correct. Okay. And somebody says, Berenson is putting out misinformation because we don't know if all those deaths were caused by the COVID vaccine. So you shouldn't be scared of the vaccine. This is misinformation. Okay, notice they're not saying that either my first statement is inaccurate, that, you know, there have been this many deaths, or that my second statement is inaccurate, that there have been this many, you know, that the number of deaths is more than the number of deaths combined. What they're saying is something that I didn't say. I didn't say I know that all these deaths were caused by the vaccine. I said, look at this. It's problematic. We need to investigate it. And that, you're absolutely correct. Like, to, 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 to throw me off Twitter for making truthful and accurate statements is just, you know, whether or not I am able to, you know, successfully sue Twitter and get back on, it is a violation of, of everything this country stands for. And, um, and, and it is wrong. And, and it is, you know, the suppression of dissent, you know, honest or not, is wrong. But the suppression of honest dissent 
is doubly wrong. On a similar note to that, um, there's a very famous quote from The Atlantic that you are considered the pandemic's wrongest man, right? So this is a sort of attack by the corporate media for your reporting on COVID. Now, as we mentioned at the top, you previously worked for The New York Times, which is considered to be a a reputable institution. Um, What do you think of how legacy media has handled reporting on COVID and then on a sort of similar topic, how do you think that they've handled reporting that goes against what the corporate media's narrative is? Well, they, they simply refuse to, to acknowledge it. I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, i so disappointed in the Times. I, work, I didn't work for the Times, you know, for a month. I worked for the New York Times for 10 years. And, you know, I left the Times on good terms. They, they My editor wanted me to stay. I left because uh, I was writing novels that were doing very well. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty good life. Um, I only really got back into... Uh, nonfiction, you know, writing and journalism because I, you know, I got frustrated with what I was seeing at the Times and other places years and years later. But, uh, but no, I, I mean, I'm so disappointed in the Times and in the legacy media in general. And, I'm, you know, I'm disappointed in the way they've covered COVID, but I think I'm even more disappointed in their efforts to silence and censor people like me. You know, when, when Twitter kicked me off, people at the New York Times and other legacy media outlets cheered. I, I think it's insane that reporters would cheer censorship. If if people are not listening to you at the New York Times or you at the Atlantic, if people are if people are you know spending their own money to hear me on Substack, if people are you know if there's this now huge you know huge group of people who are subscribing to platforms other than um, you know the legacy media, that's a sign that that you're failing. You know the the fact that that, that you know that. That, that RFK's book, you know, sold 100,000 copies a week ago. And that, you know, that, that there are all these nonfiction books that are, um, you know, that are essentially uh, conservative or independent narratives that are at the top of the bestseller list tells you that there is a desperation for information out there that the legacy media is not providing. And for them to say, we want, you know, social media companies to censor is, is insane. As we begin to wrap down this interview, I want to get your impression on certain government responses that are very top of mind right now. We talked a little bit about vaccines during this conversation, but uh, obviously one of the most prescient and pressing things that Americans are kind of stuck dealing with right now is the idea of the vaccine mandate. What are your thoughts on the Biden administration's vaccine mandate? I mean, I think, I mean, as, as I'm sure this will surprise no one at this point in the interview, I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, I think, you know, as I, as I say in pandemia, the, you know, the, the, the lockdowns were an infringement on individual liberty. School closures, you know, were terrible for kids um, and, and, and hurt our kids. But, but mandating adults take a vaccine um, is, uh, you know, is, is another level of infringement. Um, you know, in the United States, it is very, very hard to force people to take medicine against their will. You know, the, about the only time you can really do it is uh, psychiatric medicines, and a judge has to individually prove that, and you know two psychiatrists have to say it, and that's supposed to be reviewed, you know, individually after you know after a short period of time, and so I mean we we there's nothing more personal and nothing more important to somebody's you know autonomy and and rights as a citizen and as a human being than the right you know to what you put into your body, and and to you know to toss that aside for a, for a virus that. That you know kills three out of one thousand people, and you know, and many fewer than that healthy adults, is a, is is so you know anti-American, un-American, and I'm really glad to see whatever you think about the vaccines. Even if the vaccines really 
work well. By the way, if the vaccines really work well, then this shouldn't be an issue because anybody who got a vaccine is then, you know, protected. The reason that we're having this fight is, you know, oddly enough, because the vaccines don't work very well and they don't protect the people who've taken them well enough. And so those people want more protection. They want to force other people to get the vaccine. Well, you know, in that case, if the vaccines don't work that well, it should be my choice whether or not to get it. You know, do I think the risk of COVID is higher for me than the risk of being vaccinated? Do I, you know, do I just not like vaccines? Do I, you know, I could have lots of reasons not to want to be vaccinated. Um, so so I, I think the mandates are wrong. And I'm very glad to see that the, you know, that the, uh, that the courts are striking them down. They've now been struck down, you know, by multiple courts in multiple states at the federal level. Uh, I think it's quite likely that the Supreme Court will strike them down. Um, you know, we have a tradition in this country. We have a strong constitution. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm glad to see the courts stepping in. Last year, the courts were afraid. They were afraid to step in. They were afraid to challenge lockdown. Or, you know, when people tried to challenge lockdowns, they wouldn't step in. I think things have changed. I think there's been a recognition that this is that this uh, you know this epidemic is not dangerous enough to justify this kind of government overreach. One final question for you: Let's say that you are put in charge. President Biden says he will do whatever you tell him to do in relation to COVID. What would your advice to him be based on what you've learned about COVID in your research? So I say this in pandemia. I, you know, there's very I would do not much. I would I would sort of try to stand up the hospitals when there are surges. And, you know, maybe in very limited cases when you have a real, you know, difficult month somewhere, you could, you could think about, you know, encouraging people to work remotely. You can think about, uh, you know, barring, you know, closing bars and, uh, and sort of mass indoor gatherings like, like a basketball game, stuff like that. You know, small, short-term, uh, you know, um, moves that don't include mass lockdowns. I would certainly leave the schools open. I would encourage and, you know, and help fund the development of vaccines. And I test them, you know, uh, uh, properly, not, you know, not in a matter of months. I sort of acknowledge that this is that this is a multi-year problem that's going to take, a, you know, it's going to vaccines and therapeutics need to be tested properly. Um, and I try to protect nursing homes, you know, where, where, where a huge number of deaths occurred. Um, you know, I would I would do what DeSantis did and try to get, you know, have a lot of testing and get people who are sick out of those nursing homes and, and not, you know, and certainly not send people with COVID into those nursing homes. But beyond that, there's really not that much you can do. And I would say to people, our doctors, our nurses, they can handle this. Go about your lives. If you're sick, stay home, wash your hands, wear a mask if you're coughing. You know, that's a good thing to do. And that's it. That's all we can do. That's all we're going to do about this. You know, you know, go and be well. That was Alex Berenson, a former New York Times reporter and author of the new book, Pandemia, How Coronavirus Hysteria Took Over Our Government, Rights, and Lives, available now wherever books are sold. Alex, very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. You can find The Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.